Welcome to Seder and Song, a project of the Drisha Institute for Jewish Education. I am Noah Batmiri, and I'm here with Rabbi David Silber, the founder and dean of Drisha. And we are going to be talking about the Seder. You will hear four voices, my own, that of Rabbi David Silber, that of a clarinet played by Mr. Andy Statman, and that of a piano played by Mr. Abias Steinmetz Silber. We hope that you enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to the Drisha Institute for Jewish Education's project on Seder and Song. This is our fourth and final episode for this season on symbol and song. So we had the same nigun performed uh, by a different artist with a different instrument uh, in our previous episode. What does this nigun bring up for you, Rabbi Silber? This particular nigun, actually, which is, I believe I mentioned yesterday, is um, an old Hasidic nigun. Uh, it actually evokes uh, something personal, because I remember as a kid, as a child, uh, that this particular uh, nigun was used to uh, accompany the words of Ya'eli v'go'ali. Now, Ya'eli v'go'ali is a small poem that is recited in many congregations before the Musaf service of the, uh, of the festivals. It's an introduction to Musaf, an introduction to the festive prayer. And um, 
it actually struck me as appropriate for our conversation about the Seder because the Seder, which is on one hand the remembering of the experience in Egypt, the suffering in Egypt, and the exodus, and that moment of leaving, uh, we can think of it as the culmination of what happened in the past, but the truth of the matter is that it's actually also the beginning of our history. You know, it's interesting that on Pesach, uh, the Torah, when it talks about the holiday of Pesach, talks about Passover, it never calls it a day of simcha, a day of joy. The other two festivals, the festival of Sukkot, the festival of Shavuot in the Torah, it describes them as days of rejoicing. The Passover is never described as a day of rejoicing because in the Chumash it's much more about a day of opportunity. It's a day where we're free to make our choices and hopefully we'll make good choices. We know that's not always the case, but we are certainly more than grateful for the opportunity to make choices. So it's really about beginnings. And I, this particular Nigun, my experience with it, is about an introduction. So I thought for that reason, it's not a bad way to introduce two of these four podcasts which have a focus upon the, uh, the Seder. It's also interesting that these two Nigunim were played by two different uh, artists, we just heard Andy Statman, rendition on the clarinet. Yesterday, Abai played on the piano. And to underscore that, when it comes to song, it comes to expression and religious expression, different people express things differently. We don't expect just one expression. And the beauty of song and the beauty of our tradition is that it leaves space for people to express themselves in all kinds of ways. So it's interesting to hear these two songs, which have the same notes, essentially, but they sound different. There's a different feeling to them. And that's, I think, important also when we're thinking about song. That's a dimension of song that has great religious relevance. Thank you. So getting into uh, the bigger questions of this episode, which is dealing with uh, symbol and, of course, song and ritual, why is ritual important? I think that um, ritual has several dimensions to it. I'll mention uh, a couple of them. One is that ritual is a way to, uh, to strengthen the sense of, of, of community. You know, it's actually very interesting about the Haggadah. There are more Haggadot written than any other Jewish book. I think even more than, than the Bible. There are so many Haggadot and written from all different places in the world, and they're all different kinds of Haggadot. But what is striking to me is not so much the differences between the Haggadot. What is striking to me is that over time, over space, different places where Jews have lived, the similarities between the Haggadot are striking. The idea that you can travel to some other country, some other place, some other time, and have before you fundamentally the same text. And it's striking. It's, it's an observance within the house, basically. And yet, the tradition, essentially, of, 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 of the Seder, of the Haggadah, the fact that we are basically reading very similar texts with other Jews over time and, and place, 
that fosters a real deep sense of, of, uh, of community. That's certainly one of the functions of ritual, to strengthen a sense of community, connection to the other. Now, in addition to that, I think there's another point about ritual, and that is also pretty central to the Seder, and that is what we are doing on the night of Passover, in the words of the Haggadah itself, in every generation, one sees oneself as if one personally left the land of Egypt. Now, we spoke in one of the other podcasts about a personal exodus, my own personal experiences. There's also part of seeing myself from a historical standpoint as part of a, a community over time. And we do that by re-experiencing. We have one night in the year where we left Egypt and we imagine ourselves as walking out of Egypt. And what's interesting is that in the Haggadah, towards the beginning of the Haggadah, we're told the story of these sages who were up the entire night and uh, studying, exploring the story of the Exodus. Until their pupils came and said, Rabotenu, our teachers, the time has come to recite the morning Shema. And what's interesting is that recitation of the Shema, the twice-a-daily recitation of the Shema, which has three portions from the Torah, ends with the, with the, with the verse, Luman Tizkaru, you should remember and perform my commandments and be holy. I am the God who took you out of Egypt. It's the last verse of the Shema. So twice a day we say, I am the God who took you out of Egypt, and we should remember this. Remember it. So there's a commandment every day to remember the Exodus. And then once a year, there's a commandment to tell the story in great detail. They were up the entire night. And it strikes me that the idea of ritual has these two components to it. On one hand, it is keeping the experience alive. There there are religious moments in one's life. There aren't that many, typically but there are some, and we don't want to lose those moments. Jacob wrestles with the angel in the book of Genesis, and the Torah says, Therefore he was smitten on the thigh. Therefore the children of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh until this very day. We remember that event there through that which we don't do. We don't do something because we want to keep that moment alive where Jacob turns into Israel. And the same thing is true on the communal level. We re-experience the event, but we don't want to forget the event either. And that's the idea of memory. So on the night of Passover, the ritual is about keeping those moments alive. And then during the year, it's about keeping it alive through memory. So the pupils came to the sages in the morning. In effect, what they're saying is, our teachers, the way to keep the moment alive through experience has come to a conclusion. Now we keep it alive a different way, through memory. And that's the Shema, the twice-daily recitation of the Shema. So ritual and story and symbols are all related. And the Seder has many symbols. Uh, the Seder plate is probably one of the most famous Jewish ritual objects, uh, especially as far as uh, less frequently used objects go. Uh why do we have so many symbols? What are they there for? What are they about? What do they do? I think the symbol has the matzah, the moros, seeing them before us. You know, there's a statement in the Haggadah towards the end of the first section, which is taken from the Mishnah. Whoever doesn't 
say these three things, mention these three things, the Paschal sacrifice, the matzah, and the bitter herbs, has not fulfilled one's obligation. And, in other words, what we are doing in the first part of the Seder with our questioning, with our study, trying to understand the significance of the Exodus, we are, we are studying, and study is certainly central to our tradition. In fact, the Seder has both study and it has the, the sacrificial. The, the meal is a sacrificial meal. We don't have a sacrifice, but we stand in for it with the Afrikomen. And the question is the relationship between these two things. And I think what the symbols represent for us is study and this symbol. There's study and there's ritual. And I think what it means, it means, it means something in two different ways. It means that it's important to try to understand what we're doing, not to simply do things by rote. Before you eat the matzah, you want to understand its significance. In general, we don't want to do things just because we do them. There is a value to tradition, no question. We want to understand. But there's another side to it as well. And that is that, that which we are studying should, should actually turn to something that we do. Study in and of itself is significant, but it's important because it leads us in a certain path, a certain mode of behavior, a certain understanding. It has to result in, in action. And yes, the more we study, the better we understand what we should be doing, and one, one leads to the other. So I think keeping those ritual objects before us at all times is a way to remind us that it's not study in and of itself which is disconnected from a kind of reality. Yes, at the Seder, it's about fulfilling the uh, obligations the Torah has placed upon us. But in a, in a larger sense, it means that whatever we study, whatever we're trying to understand, that understanding should lead towards appropriate behavior. And of course, uh, sometimes we change our mind. We understand things differently. When we come together and study as a group and even individually, we rethink, we change our mind, we try to correct our mistakes, of course. But to the best of our ability to understand and then to put that into practice, to me that's what ritual objects represent, both at the Seder in terms of the matzah, the maror, and beyond that, as a general proposition to the way that the, our tradition wants us to, to behave. So when we're talking about leaving Egypt, is that a hope or is it an expectation? Is it a prayer? Is it a demand of some sort? What is this? Well, I think the at the Seder, the Seder is about seeing ourselves at that moment of leaving Mitzrayim. The truth of the matter is that the core text of the Seder, the core text, don't actually deal with anything beyond the moment of the Exodus. Like Psalm 114, when Israel left Egypt, we became God's holy people. God was our king. It's all focused on that moment. And it's a moment of uncertainty. And what the Seder is about really is thinking beyond that moment. That was the moment we became a people, and now we had the ability to choose. But at the Seder, we are also, in effect, saying that we're moving, it's part of a process. The Seder sees us as 
being part of a covenantal process, which ends up in a very good place. On the table, we have the cup of Elijah. We have the fifth cup that we don't drink, which represents some kind of future redemption. We end the Seder by saying, next year in Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the temple, Jerusalem being the place of sacrifice, which is, in the tradition, the symbol of ultimately connecting to the divine. So there is a sense of a sense of hope, certainly, that we're on a good path, uh, and that the Exodus is the beginning of that path. And I understood your question to be, at the Seder, do we express a certitude that we're going to arrive? Is Lashon HaBabi Rushalayim a statement of expectation? Or is it a statement of prayer? It's a, it's a hope. It's a hope. Which of those is it? And I was thinking that actually we have a custom after the Seder to sing more songs. This song, the Hallel, is also the great Hallel afterwards, Psalm 136. The blessing of song, Nishmat, that's all at the Seder. And then after we finished, we, we sing more songs. That's been the common Jewish practice. One of the songs we sing, Adirhu, Yivne Beito Bekarov. We talk about God, God will build God's house soon. Referring to the temple, it's the symbol of ultimately being in God's presence. And once again, there have been many tunes for Adirhu. So I think we should listen to two tunes of Adirhu. Uh, one is the standard tune that I grew up with, and many people grew up with in the Ashkenazic world. I was researching where this is from. It's coming, I believe, from, sounds like German music to me. And um, that's one tune. And then we have a different Adirhu. This is by Shomo Karbach. And this is a very different feel to it. And one of them, to me, feels like is more of an element of prayer. And the second is more, I think, the one I grew up with is more in, the, in line with expectation. So let's listen to these two adiahus, and they reflect two different approaches to Lushana Habab Yerushalayim. Let's, let's, let's start first with the adiahu, the standard Ashkenazic adiahu.
Now let's listen to a different version of Adiru, same words. This is by Shomo Kalbach. This to me has a very different feel to it. Uh, there is more a sense of a prayer, I think. That's my take on it. But of course, songs lend themselves to a variety of interpretations. series, we focused on Seder, we focused on song, we focused on Seder and song, and I'm wondering, Rabbi Silber, if you have any last thoughts uh, on these matters. Well, I think song is, as I had mentioned earlier, very central to our tradition, central to our liturgy. And um, what we've tried to demonstrate is We've tried to expose some of people to some of the Hasidic music. There's a vast amount of Hasidic music. Uh, but I would say that when it comes to song, when it comes to music, there are the notes, but there are also the pauses, there are also the silences. And I think the power of the music is often not just in the, in the, in the sounds, one might say, the sound of silence. It's very interesting that actually in biblical Hebrew, the word for song is sheer, and the word for poetry is also sheer. And the place where we have Jewish poetry, essentially, it's in the Bible in many places, but the book of poetry is the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms contains many of the Psalms' superscriptions about how it is to be sung. So, Song and poetry are connected. And we know that in biblical poetry, for example, the Song of the Sea, Shiratayam, the way it's written, it's written with spaces. There's blank space between the words. And that the blank space is part of the poetry. And the silence is part of the song. And I think the idea of that, song in general, and the silence, is that there's always more. You can never fully express it. And that idea that you can never fully express it is central to the, uh, to the Seder. That's how the Seder begins. The Seder makes a statement about, the Haggadah makes a statement about the Seder. The more you say, the better. You can never say enough. The sages were up the entire night and they were so engrossed, they didn't realize the night was over. And they would, would have continued way beyond, but their pupils said, time's up. Time to recite the morning Shema. 
And when we come to, to the Hallel, to the praise, and after we have all the praises, the Hallel, the six Psalms, and Psalm 136, and the blessing of song, Birkat Hashir, Nishmat Kolchai. And what does it say in Nishmat? We, we, we never can say enough. If our mouth were filled with song of the, like the sea, the vast seas, there's not enough to say. We can't fully express the gratitude. So the song is another way to express gratitude, but the song contains with itself the pauses and the silences. And the truth of the matter is that I think it would be, it's important to understand when it comes to song that the song has silences. In many places, when I'm hearing people sing songs, Jewish songs, nigunim, they try to fill in all the spaces. And that's not right. Because the, the spaces are important. The spaces are making a very important statement. There's always more. There's things that we can't actually express. There's things that are not capable of, of expression. Not in words, and not even in song. The song does take us to different places. The song allows us to express things that we can't express simply with words. But even the song recognizes that there are things that we can't express, even with song, and that's the silences. So I think for the, for the Seder, which is all about the more you say, the better. You can never be grateful enough for this opportunity, the opportunity of freedom, to make our own choices, even recognizing that often we don't make good choices. But we are so grateful that we can make the choices. And if you can make choices, you can be a whole person. And to fully connect to the divine, you can fully connect if we're a full human being. And a slave is not a full human being. So we're so grateful for that. We have the opportunity, and what the Seder moves us towards is an understanding that with freedom comes responsibility, and that we are obligated to make the best decisions that we can and to take full responsibility for our behavior. Of course, we can't blame anybody else, not under anybody else's control at this point. We are free people. Nothing more appropriate to the Seder than song. And I think we should conclude by replaying a song that we heard in the context of Hallel, that was the Pitchuli, played very beautifully by Andy. And now we'll hear again Pitchuli Share Tzedek, open up the gates. The one who was searching, searching and searching for the, for the house, for the place, to share the experience and to learn from others, Pitchuli Share Tzedek from the School of Mudgets. And we conclude our series on Seder and Song.